Okay, just a reminder. So this second session now is, well, so what is it? What is reading the Bible supernaturally? And then, and then tomorrow morning will be, what is natural reading supernaturally? Because clearly, reading is natural. Like, unbelievers do it all the time. And uh, what we do is the same as that. But this session is what makes it supernatural. So back to the goal, the Bible itself shows that our ultimate goal in reading the Bible is that God's infinite worth and beauty would be exalted in everlasting white-hot worship of the blood-bought bride from every people, tongue, and tribe, and nation. Now, if if, if we made a case that that's the big ultimate goal of encountering God in His Word, Um, the implication is going to be, well, then this reading must be supernatural. But let me go backwards and sum it up. I'll just sum up where we've been, and it'll be obvious then why it must be supernatural, and then we'll talk about what in the world is that. Um, One, since the ultimate purpose of God is to be enjoyed and exalted in white-hot worship of a beautiful bride a beautiful bride, a holy bride, then God's people must inwardly be transformed from glory to glory. So that, I'm going backwards now. Going backwards from where we went this morning. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm going, I'm going backwards. If, if they must be transformed, now number two, this transformation happens by savoring the glory of the Lord Jesus, that is, by being satisfied by Christ supremely and treasuring him above all things. So from transformation to savoring or delighting in or treasuring. Third, this savoring of all that God is happens by seeing or beholding the glory of the Lord for who he really is, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Four, this seeing is possible only because God reveals the peculiar glory of himself and his ways in the scriptures. Five, reading those scriptures or hearing them, hearing someone else read them and communicate them is the means that God has appointed for all those glorious effects. Six, therefore reading the Bible is God's indispensable means of bringing about the ultimate purpose of creation and redemption. That's, that's the argument going Backwards. Now, if that's true, then you can see why it, it must be supernatural. Give three, three things that should be obvious to you. One, seeing the glory of the Lord is not merely seeing with these eyes, but rather what Paul calls in Ephesians 1.18, the eyes of the heart, and 2 Corinthians 3.18, when he says, beholding the glory of the Lord, he says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, nothing could be plainer than that that's supernatural. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So when you behold the glory of the Lord and start to be changed into what you see, God's doing that. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So that's first obvious observation that that uh, reading the Bible must be supernatural if that goal is to happen. Number two, savoring is clearly not merely human emotion. Because Jesus said, I speak these things to you that my joy may be in you. So that's, that's not yours only. 
You experience it. It really feels like an emotion. It is an emotion, but it's so much more than emotion. And so it's a miracle that, that in an encounter with the Word, by the Spirit, the joy of Jesus becomes our joy. And the third is the word transformation. So seeing, savoring, transformation. When it says we are being changed, it doesn't mean mere moral rearmament or self-improvement, but the Holy Spirit is changing us, really changing us. Our DNA within, our spiritual DNA has been changed because we've been born again by the living and abiding Word. So, reading the Bible in a way that accomplishes the goal of the Bible must be a supernatural act, a profoundly supernatural act. And it's it's and don't don't get sidetracked feeling good night. It just feels so natural. <laughs> like this is a subject and a verb and a direct object and there's all these grammatical constructions I learned in school. This is what everybody does. We're going to talk about that tomorrow and how crucial that is. But right now, we're simply talking about meeting God and seeing glory in and through that grammar. Why, why must it be supernatural? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord. This is what my mother wrote to me more often than any other text as I was in college and, and graduate school before she died when I was 28. She was right. Johnny, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. She just... Sometimes, just, sometimes she'd write it out, sometimes she'd put it there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, that would include reading the Bible. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. So when you come to the Bible, you don't trust in your own understanding. You don't lean on your own understanding. You say, no. And then you try to understand. You try to understand. That's tomorrow's message. And yet, you're not leaning on it. You're not depending on it. You know. You know you've done that a hundred times and never seen glory. You've never been moved. You've never communed with God. You can read that book until doomsday. Satan evidently read it long enough to memorize it. Quote it to Jesus. So, ultimately and decisively... The, the reading of the Bible must be supernatural. And there are two reasons for why um, it, it is so difficult and why we need supernatural help. And the first one is Satan, and the second one is sin. These are our two great obstacles, Satan and sin. And a, little, a little parenthesis here. I didn't plan to do this, but... Um, I made a little note in my, in my Evernote. I keep an Evernote file called Blog. Uh, just get ideas for to, to write on. And, and just this week, when I was reviewing this and thinking about it, Satan and sin are the great, the great obstacles to seeing and savoring and being changed into the glory of the Lord as I encounter Him in the Word. And Satan is working against that, and sin is working against that. And I, and I thought, you know, it just, it, when those two team up, there's, there's more, there's, there's a third reality. The New Testament, I think, calls it world, the world. 
Don't be conformed to this world. There's, there's a structure, right? And, and, and that hit me that a lot of majority culture people stumble over the term structural racism. It's like, what is that? I know, real, I know personal racism, but, but what, is, what is structural racism? And, and it hit me, I, I need to write an article about structural lust, structural greed. Because if I could, if I could put my finger on how individual sinning and demonic powers conspire in cultures or companies or industries or families to create integrated structures that are evil. If I could show that with greed, if I could show it with lust, then maybe wouldn't wouldn't stumble so quickly over racism. Close parenthesis. I can write that someday because I, I, I've never seen an article on structural greed or structural lust. But as soon as I say it, I'll bet you can think of ideas of what that might look like. I mean, the whole pornographic industry, for example, might be, and the way it's woven into advertising, the way it's woven into almost every TV show, the way the devil has conspired to make lust a structural phenomenon. It's not an individual phenomenon. It's everywhere. It is so structurally built into our world that you can barely get away from it. And, and so that would be true, I think, of greed. That's the way all advertising happens almost. It's the way all appeals to all kinds of things happen. And, and then you say, okay, I've learned, I've learned how this works with lust. I've learned how it works with greed. And you can pick some other sins. And so pray, come back to racism and I'll say, okay, now what, how would that work? If I, if I demean and do not like and belittle a certain race, and enough of us do that, and then Satan comes in with his hatred of human beings, and over time structures are built to uh, help that along Close parenthesis. Let's see, where was I? Uh, oh, yes. The two big reasons for why we have to have supernatural help is Satan and sin. All right? And, and this other reality I'll write about later, maybe. And you can, you can write it as well as I can. Let's talk about Satan here and uh, take him seriously for a few minutes. I don't want to give him more than his due. I, love the, I just wrote an article on why I love the Apostle Paul. We'll probably put it up in a few weeks on the website, but why I love the Apostle Paul. And one of the things I said was that he takes Satan so seriously and he doesn't give him more than he deserves. <laughs> he is a defeated foe, and you can't find Satan behind every verse in, the new t- in Paul's writings. He's here, here, and here. And he's being told, you know, arm yourself, you've got a great adversary, but he's not in every verse. You, he's, Paul is not the kind of person who says, ah, a little sin, must be a Satan. That's a, that's a satanic lust thing you've got going on. He doesn't even talk like that. You are your biggest problem. Satan is not your biggest problem. You are. Satan's a problem, and we're going to deal with that. But I'm just saying, I don't want to give him more than his due here, because Paul... And I think Jesus doesn't give him more than his due. They don't harp on Satan. Read, read the, the epistles afresh sometime and say, now where's demonic evil in the epistles? It'll be there. Oh, it's there. But it's not everywhere. You're everywhere. <laughs> your potential is everywhere and your sin is everywhere. But Satan, 
He doesn't get more than his due. So here's, here's the key text, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's, that's Satan. Jesus calls him the God of this age. The God of this world has blinded the minds. Blinded the minds. Just stop and think about it. I know people like this. There are people in my family like this. It's horrific. It's horrible. It's scary to the max to watch it happen. And, of course, there's millions of people like this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So so what is Satan doing? At least in this text, and this seems really foundational to me, Satan's business is team up with human sin of unbelief and make sure people stay blind to the glory of Christ in the gospel. So they go to church, these people, these blind people, they go to church, and a text is read which articulates the beauty of Christ in dying and rising and saving and suffering and loving. Nothing. Let's just go watch football. Nothing. That's, That's this text. It's a terrifying thing. It's an absolutely terrifying thing. Which is why what? This weekend, Nancy, Wolgamus Ministry, some of you women know this is happening, right? Just all, over, all over the country, this, the women are gathering for what's called Cry Out. I forget what she's called it, but she's, she's got about 60,000 women plus all over the country tuning in to watch this, this revival. And she's saying, the only hope for us blind people is revival. Of course, she's right. Urging women to cry out to God for the lifting The lifting, we all know people, friends, family members, whose eyes are blind. You sit across from the table, you articulate a spiritual beauty that moves your heart. Nothing, nothing. That's called blindness. And then there's sin. So Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, is blinding the minds of unbelievers. And now, what about sin? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he does not understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, the natural person. What's natural person? That means who you are by nature. First birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Natural. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Everybody's first birth Flesh, natural, and he says, to the natural person, spiritual things are foolishness. It gets worse. Romans 8, 7 and 8. Not just foolishness. We hate them. We hate them. 
The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. Just think about this. Just pause. I mean, we read over these things and don't... I'm going to write a book next, next spring, and a big hunk of that book on preaching is going to be on the reality factor. To try to get pastors, at least pastors, when they read a sentence like that, say, stop! Do you realize what you just said? The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. And if you say, what is the mind of the flesh? This is not Hitler's mind. This is your mind minus Jesus. Think of some sweet old lady who doesn't love Jesus. She hates God. She won't say that. You don't say that in America. At least not in your presence, you don't. This is the mind of the flesh. That's all of us. That's human nature, is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh, in the flesh, that just means human, cannot please God. So it's not just that unbelievers hear these things and they're foolish. They hear these things and they don't like them. Whatever they articulate to themselves, they don't like God's authority God's sovereign rights over their lives. Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And the mind of the flesh, get the connection, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Paul talks, the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. So, we know that we have Satan as our enemy. We have our own fallenness. Now, just another little parenthesis here for those of you who are like me. I grew up in a Christian home. I do not remember not being a Christian. Too many negatives in that sentence, you get it? I do not remember being an unbeliever. My mother told me that I got down on my knees in Fort Lauderdale, Florida when I was six years old with her guidance and confessed my sin and confessed Jesus as my Savior and Lord and asked Him to save me. I don't remember that. So how does John Piper know anything about the mind of the flesh? (laughs) The the pre-regenerate hater of God. I never remember hating God. So you might be in that situation. You you grew up in a Christian home. You you don't remember your conversion, and you're sitting there and, and you're a Christian. So what what? Here's here's the deal. We are given this book to tell us how we got saved, because there are a lot of people who do remember their conversion and they don't have a clue what happened. <laughs> Theologically, they don't know because they were so badly taught about the miracle of new birth that happened when they decided for Jesus. So whether you remember it or don't remember it, you've got to be taught what happened. You've got to be taught that you were dead and came alive, that you were natural and now you're a supernatural person, that you had no Holy Spirit, now you have a Holy Spirit. You've got to be taught that. So my answer to how does John Piper have any experience, number one, I've been taught that I was dead. And I believe that I was dead. 
I believe that I was dead probably more firmly than some people who remember being dead believe that they were dead. Because they've never been taught they were dead. That was dead. You, you were taught that you had free will back there and, and you teamed up with God and the two of you together got yourself saved. And so they don't understand what dead means. And now God's taught me what dead means. It means really dead. You were helpless. So I know that from the Bible, which is way better than knowing it by memory. My memory's all screwed up, especially now. Second thing is, my old man is trying to pull himself off the cross every day. That's what Romans 7 is about, I think. Not just Romans 7, but Galatians 5. Spirit and the flesh war against each other. I know enough about my sinful inclinations. What? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh Lord, and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Because if you don't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bail on you. I'm so sorry that's the way I'm wired, but you know that's the way I'm wired. I am an enemy of God by nature. If you don't not only get me born again, but hold on to me with omnipotent power, like Jude says, now unto him who's able to keep you, and then I'm gone. So those two things enable me to look at a text like this, the natural Man does not love the things of the Spirit, and therefore, if he gets the upper hand, you're going to read your Bible with nothing happening. Or worse, like our friend last night, the bricks are going to start falling out of your building because you see a problem here, a problem here, a problem here. Solutions never come. The problems mount up. The bricks fall out, and you wake up someday and say, there's nothing left standing in my faith at all which is a scary prospect, which is why that song is so good and why the promise of being kept is so wonderful. Let me look with you for a few minutes at an example of failure in Bible reading. Who would you go to in the Bible for a failure in Bible reading? Who were the most colossal failures of Bible readers in the Bible, I wonder? You don't have to say it out loud. You can think of it. Or we could do one of these little tests back there with Logos Bible software, get everybody to put their answer down. <laughs> but we're not all wired for that yet. Maybe next time. The answer is the Pharisees. Unbelievable. Um, Jesus said, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. So they could parrot the Bible. They could read it. And when they stood up in the synagogue, read it, said, Moses said, do it. But if you go watch them in their bedroom or in the bank, don't do that. Jesus repeatedly, I mean, this is, this is so astonishing. This is what I saw back last March. It blew me. I wrote a whole chapter on this because I was so stirred and grieved and made fearful by it. Nobody read the Bible more than the Pharisees in Jesus' day, right? Nobody read the Bible more than the Pharisees. Nobody knew more of it by heart. Nobody quoted it more to other people, get them to do the right thing. And nobody hears from Jesus 
the indictment more often, have you ever read the Bible? He said six times to the Pharisees, have you never read? Can you imagine what that felt like? Say, I don't think you've ever read the Old Testament. <laughs> it's, like, it's like saying to Peyton Manning, you ever thrown a football? That, that's, what, that's what it would have sounded like to them, I think. Or to Winston Churchill. You ever read any history? I just finished a biography of Hurt Churchill. He read a lot of history, wrote a lot of history too. Six times Jesus looks these Pharisees square in the eye and tells them, you don't know what you're talking about. It must have been infuriating. It was infuriating. They killed him. Let me give you a few, two examples. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. This is about the Sabbath, okay? What should they have learned from the Old Testament that they utterly missed? Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, they say to Jesus. Verse 3, Matthew 12, 3. He said to them, have you not read? This is galling. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor, who were with, nor those who were with him, but only the priests? Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what that means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Think of that sentence. If you had known what it means in Hosea 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have said what you just said. You don't know what it means. You can't read. You Pharisees, you, you experts, you readers of all, all time, you can't read. Here's a second example, Matthew 19, 3-6 on divorce and remarriage. The Pharisees came to him, came up to him, and tested him by asking, "Is it lawful for, a, uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?" And he said, "Have you not read? Like, don't you read your Bible? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, said, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You haven't read your Bible? Why are you asking me this question? What, what went wrong for the Pharisees? That, that's what I had to figure out. I mean, because I don't want to go there, right? Because I'm in the Pharisees' position. I am, I'm supposed to be an expert in Bible reading. I write books. Teach. Go online every other day with some kind of Telling thousands of people how to live. Ask Pastor John. Good man. Can you imagine, Pastor John? Let not many of you become teachers. You go online there and talk to 100,000 people every day or so, and then get on, look at the book, and tell them that's what this text means. Who do you think you are? What went wrong? Because I don't want, I don't want 
Jesus to, to come to me any night or morning and say, have you never read First Peter? Have you never read Romans? What, what was that stupid thing you said yesterday? Because I could easily imagine he, he, would, he would say that. I mean, I know he would. I, if he had come to me when I was 15, he would have said, you never read Colossians 3.11? You racist kid? What's with you? You think you're a Christian? You, you, you haven't even read your Bible, Piper. I mean, all of us, all of us are in this kind of situation. We all have blind spots like that. And it's terrifying that we would make such mistakes as the Pharisees did so that Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. What went wrong with them? What went wrong with them was sin and Satan. And it is very significant I mean, that, that, that Jesus goes after them in both ways. I want you to see this because the whole reason for holding up the Pharisees is to help you not be one. That's at least why I'm doing it. So he said to them that their love of money you ever thought about the Pharisees as lovers of money? Their love of money, their love of the praise of men, their love of sex, those three things. Jesus' fingers. Can you believe that? Pharisees. I mean, these are, these are people, who, we, we only think of them as legalists, right? That's their function in our lives is to say legalist and bad, Pharisaic. That's the very word means, Pharisaic. They were lewd. Behind closed doors, they love money, they love sex, and they love the praise of people. And I'll show you, that's what kept them from seeing the meaning of the Old Testament. I'm arguing. Um, Matthew 6, 16, 4. An evil and adulterous generation. Why do you call them adulterous? Well, it might mean spiritual adultery by having idols in their heart. I think it meant more than that. You clean the outside of the cup. This is Matthew 23, 25. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Greed. They're greedy. They're money lovers. They're, they're making godliness a means of gain. First Timothy 6. They're using, they're using the Bible... And behind the scenes, they're filling the temple with money changers. Matthew 23, 5 and 6, you do all your deeds to be seen by others. Sex, adultery, <coughs> greed, praise. You love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. In other words, these... Bible readers, experts in Bible reading, loved sex, loved money, loved human praise. Does that sound familiar? I mean, can you pick a triad more pervasive of the human reality? What people think of us and all the power, either fearing that's negative or wanting that to be positive. Just aching, longing. Some of you are, are utterly driven by this. And then money. Who isn't tempted by money? This. And then sex. Nothing goes more visceral in its cravings than, than sex. And 
And we just don't think of the Pharisees this way. And therefore, I think we miss um, what really was blinding them. Listen to John 5, and you get the connection between the love of praise. You could substitute money. You could substitute sex. Here's what he says in John 5, Jesus says to them, how can you believe? I wish we had time. I would stop and say, believe. What does believe mean in the Gospel of John? And believe means more than assent with your mind. It means embrace as your living water and your living bread. You come to Jesus to satisfy your soul. How can you, how can you come to me and find satisfaction when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now that's a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions have answers that are implicit, right? That's their function. You know the answer because the way the question is stated. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And the answer is you can't. That's the point. You, you, if you look at me, you will see a person ready to die for the glory of his Father and calling people to come after me and take up their cross and follow me in the path of self-denial for ultimate joy in God, not themselves and not their praise. You love the praise of man, therefore I can never be appealing to you. I can never be your treasure, ever. Because you are so much in love with what I'm not going to give you. And therefore, when they went to the Old Testament, what did they do? They found confirmations of their sin. That's what they did. And then to make it worse, Jesus said this, John 8, 43. So we're moving from sin to Satan now. Why do you not understand what I say? Why don't you understand what I say? Jesus says to them, it is because, here's why you can't understand what I say. It is because you cannot bear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. So sin was at work, inclining their will towards money, sex, and the praise of men. And Satan was at work, and he's a deceiver and a liar, a murderer from the beginning. So he means to get these Pharisees in hell with him at any cost. And he does it by disinclining their hearts from the word of Jesus. The word. So our problems and the Pharisees' problems are not intellectual. I mean, I met with my friend day before yesterday over lunch who has left the faith and all his presenting problems were intellectual. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And um, I think deeper and underneath there are other things going on. Nothing creates a greater barrier to seeing what is really here, seeing what is really here, what the Pharisees could not see when they read the Old Testament. Nothing creates a greater barrier than a heart that loves other things more than God. 
If your heart loves yourself or money or sex or family or ministry or preaching or writing books or being healthy more than you love God, you will not understand the Bible as you ought. There will be these filters through which everything must pass and the things that you need will look like foolishness and they won't get through the grid. So let me give you three pictures of what the supernatural help looks like in the Bible. All of that to say, that's why we need it. Our own sin and Satan and the model of the Pharisees show we are desperate for supernatural help to read the Bible as we ought. Three pictures of what it looks like. Number one, Jesus, here's the phrase from the text, Luke 24, opened their minds. So there's a picture. He opened minds. So on the Emmaus Road, two disciples baffled at what's been going on in Jerusalem in the last days, and uh, they explained to Jesus why they're so confused. And here's what Jesus says to them, Luke 24, 25. Oh, foolish ones. Okay? Not commendatory, foolish. Just like 1 Corinthians, the natural mind regards the things of the Spirit as foolishness. Oh, foolish ones. And this interesting phrase, slow of heart. What's that? Slow. Br- the, the Greek word is like heavy. Like, you know, when you have those dreams and I want to run fast. And I, yeah. What is that? Everybody, a lot of people anyway. Raise your hand if you've ever had a dream like that. Okay, isn't that weird? What's with that? Just so I could use this illustration maybe. I need to run. And but that, that's a picture evidently of slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So, foolishness, slowness of heart. Now, what needs to happen? Chapter 24, verse 32, he meets them, he starts opening the scriptures to them, and, and they say in, in Luke 24, 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. That's the first phrase. We haven't gotten to the phrase I mentioned, like opening the mind, but he's opening the scriptures. This is what a good pastor is supposed to do, or what you do when you work over a text. He opened the scriptures to them. And when they started to see, they described it as their hearts burned. Carl Lundquist, the former president of Bethel College when I was there, when he retired, formed a group called the Order of the Burning Heart, kind of a Protestant order for people who wanted to just go hard after God and pray an hour a day and experience the burning. That happens when the Word is seen for what it, what it really is. Now, here's the best part. So now we're at chapter 24, Luke 24, 44. And the 11, minus Judas, are hidden away in a room, and Jesus comes to them. And he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Wow. That's supernatural, right? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So when you pray, when you start reading your Bible in the morning, ask for that. Ask for that. Whatever you did, Jesus, do it. Because I don't want to be blank. I don't want to be unresponsive. I want to see. I want to savor. I want to be changed. I want you to shine forth. So do that for me. He opened their mind. So that's the first picture. Write that one down. The the opening of the mind by the risen Christ is the first. Here's the second picture of what supernatural assistance looks like. He shines, God shines a supernatural light into our hearts. And you know that text, I think. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 goes like this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's God who said once in creation, let there be light has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So there's knowledge, but there's a light of the knowledge. A lot of people have the knowledge. Devil's got the knowledge. He doesn't have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. There's a, Edward's called the divine and supernatural light. And that light is given by God, it says, shining He's shown into our heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, when you're praying, you can use those words. You don't have to use the same words every time. You can say, open my mind to understand Jesus like you did to the 11. And you could say, God, shine, shine into my heart to illuminate what's really there and to Get the darkness out of the way that makes me so unresponsive. Third picture. He enlightens the eyes of the heart. He's got the opening of the mind. You've got the shining of light. And you've got the enlightening of eyeballs on the heart. Strange picture. Ephesians 1.17 I pray that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of Him. Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes, I think this is what that spirit does, that makes you wise and, and, and makes you able to see revelation. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Now, that must mean, that word know there must mean more than facts. The, nev- the devil knows all those facts. If, if you were to ask the devil, has God promised hope, indescribably wonderful, to his people? The devil would say, yeah, stupid to believe that. He would say, yeah, say, yeah. So you don't need supernatural help to know the fact that God has promised hope to his people. But when you read that 
and don't feel anything, like more hope in the stock market, more hope in some cancer cure, more hope in whatever. You just feel way more hope in these natural things and nothing in that. Then you know this prayer needs to be prayed. Oh, my. Having the eye. And you know what's so encouraging about Ephesians 1.18? He's talking to Christians. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 was for unbelievers. That was conversion being described there when, when light shone into your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That was unbelievable. That was conversion. But this is believers. He is praying for the Ephesian saints that what you experience, every person in this room does. Greg and I were talking this morning at the breakfast table about, about experiences of the reality of God that are real and unmistakable and precious and memorable. And, 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 and I said, I, I don't think of those in terms of either or. Like, either you have them or you don't have them, but rather more or less. Gradations. And when you read your Bible, some days the eyes of your heart seem not to be as bright, wide, and other days, you could linger all day over this word because he's so sweet, he's so real, he's so present, he's so satisfying. And I think to talk that way is implicit in this text. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened is being prayed for Christians. And you, all you have to do is read the Psalms. I mean, the psalmists cry out, we'll talk about this tomorrow morning, the psalmist cry out, open the eyes of my heart that I may see wonderful things. See wonderful things. Because right now I'm not. Why would he pray it, right? Why would he pray it? If right now he wasn't seeing wonderful things, and he knows he should be seeing wonderful things. So three pictures of one, opening of the scriptures slash opening of our minds. Two, shining of divine light into the soul. Three, the enlightening of the eyes of our heart. Now, one last thing before we're done. Let's look at the connection between the supernatural miracle of new birth, the coming into being of a soul that can really see the glory of God, in his word and the ongoing supernatural act of reading the scriptures. What's the connection between those two? And I, I, I mentioned, I'm raising this question, raising this issue, because it seems to me that we could make the mistake like this. We could say, the, the, clearly, the Christian life begins with a miracle. New birth. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So, if you're not born of the Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you haven't experienced the supernatural, you're not a Christian because that's what the new birth is. And now the rest of life, like encountering the Word, is basically natural. Get started, supernatural, go on. Now, now you just do what you have to do. That'd be one mistake. And, and the other would be uh, thinking that there's uh, an ongoing need for the supernatural, but it has no connection with the beginning. You'll see what I mean, maybe as we, as we go. I've got two texts to look at, and we're done. James 1, 18 to 21, 
And 1 Peter 1, 23 to 2, 3. I had never noticed how similar these passages are until I taught 1 Peter last fall. This is an amazing discovery for me. But let's look at James first. So James 1, 18 to 21. What we're looking for is this. What's the connection between the beginning of the Christian life in new birth and the ongoing supernatural encounter of the Word in our Bibles? Okay, here we go. Verse 18. Of His own will... Underlining the sovereignty and freedom of God, of His own will, He brought us forth, caused to be born, brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Okay, stop. Let's make sure we get that. God, in His sovereign will, reaches down and causes a new being, new creature, to come into existence. A Christian. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive, verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Wow. I want to know what that is. That's so provocative. If it's implanted, what do you mean receive it? And if you're receiving, what do you mean it's implanted? I mean, phrases like that just keep me awake. What is that? And surely it relates back up to verse 18, doesn't it? By his, of his own will, he brought us forth. How? How did you get born again? Through the word, by the word of truth. So, okay, somehow, I was dead. I was not a new creature. And the word preached or read or in a tract or on TV or Billy Graham or something, the word by the Holy Spirit enters my life and is implanted. It's there. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm, I'm a new creature by the word. And then two verse what? Three verses later, he says, go on receiving. Don't, don't, don't draw out your crazy human implications like, okay, I got the word in me. I'm a new creature. Eat, drink, and be merry because I'm going to heaven when I die. It doesn't make any difference in the meantime. That's not a newborn creature talking. That's the devil talking. And if you're talking that way, you're in team with the wrong leader. What it says is, receive with meekness, humility, the implanted word. Okay, so my best shot (laughs) at making sense out of that is, okay, it is in you. The new birth planted there like seed. It's in you. And you are being made new by the word. Now, My means of advancing that all the way to glory is receive this as implanted. Not foreign. It's not foreign. It's who you are. You've already received the the word. It's planted in you. It's who you are. It's your DNA. Now, go on. Drink it. Eat it. That's my take. He's trying to help us see the connection between how you got saved, the miracle of what did it, and how it happened, 
and the ongoing receive it, receive it, implanted. Receive it as it's implanted. And the more I thought about it, the less strange it became that the very reality that gave you life must be constantly received to sustain life. God has just ordained that it be so. So that's James. Now, look at how similar the thinking is in 1 Peter 1, 23-2-3. You have been born again. 1 Peter 1, 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Okay, now the word seed is actually used. It's like sperm, okay? I think. I think, I think that's what he has in mind. So, life happened in the womb. You can't press the analogy too far. This is a human being, I mean a new creature coming into being. But life happened, and that life happened by the living and abiding Word of God, which is an imperishable seed. It's in there, it's in there, it's who you are, and it's imperishable. So you're imperishable. That's, that's how the new birth happened, according to verse 23. And then he compares the word, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. But the word of the Lord, by which you were born again, the word of the Lord remains forever. The whole point is, it's imperishable, you're not going to die. It's in there, and it is lodged, that's who you are. Your new being is designed by this seed that combined with, I mean, you can't, they don't even know about eggs, and I don't think, <laughs> they don't know how it works. This was pre-scientific, so, but they knew it took a man and a woman, but the, Lord, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So now he's defining the word by which we were born again. That's the gospel. This the good news that was preached to you. And now, a lot of people, you know, there's a chapter break there. And people stop and say, oh, that's great, I learned about the new birth. And it is great. But watch. So just forget the chapter break. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, because you were just born, you were born, right? Like newborn infants, long. It's like receive. Like James received the implanted word. Long for the pure spiritual milk. Doesn't say word, but I think implicitly in the context, milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So you, you've tasted that the Lord is good in the Word, and He says, go on, desiring it. He explicitly commands them, desire. Isn't that an amazing command in verse 2? Like newborn infants, long desire for the pure milk of the Word that you may grow up into salvation. And it's the same Word by which you were born again and became imperishable. So the, the New Testament is just shot through with this paradox between you've been born again, you belong to Jesus, you will live forever. Yes, you will. Now, receive the word so that you live forever. That's just all over the New Testament. And, and theologies divide if you try to divide that. If you try to get eternal security minus holiness, minus 
spiritual warfare, you will create a theology that's not biblical. Or if you neglect the assurance that is given through justification by faith and the new birth and the glorious promises that if you believe you have eternal life, not temporary life, and just put all the emphasis over here on fight, 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 holy, 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 because you won't get to heaven otherwise. You won't have a biblical theology either. It's the, it's the tension of these two. Now, let me, let me just draw out what you, you saw probably, but I'll make it explicit, the connection between James and 1 Peter. Because this, this really blew me away. I'll, I'll tell you why in just two minutes. One minute maybe. Here's the connections. James, he brought us forth. First Peter, you have been born again. James, by the word of truth. Peter, through the living and abiding word of God. James, put away all malice. First Peter, put away all filthiness. James, in meekness. Peter, like newborn infants. James, receive the implanted word. Peter, long for the pure milk. James, which is able to save your souls. Peter, that by it you may grow up into salvation. That's amazing. And the reason it's amazing is because they are not similar enough to be quoting each other. Or a common source. You get what I mean? I mean, it's not uncommon at all for two people to sound exactly alike if they're copying something the same. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that happens in the Bible. Both, you know, two prophets quoting Moses. They're going to sound exactly the same from Exodus 34. Same words. You don't say, whoa, why are they the same? Well, they both read Exodus. That's not what's going on here. This is, the differences are so profound and the similarities are so unmistakable. What does that mean? And what, what I take it personally, I mean, I could say more, you know, from a scholarly standpoint, but I think what I take it personally to mean is that this is God giving us two independent witnesses to the profound way new birth and ongoing spiritual life through drinking the word or receiving the word work. And to see those parallels isn't just interesting, it's receiving from God, oh, you really mean for me to get this. You really mean for me to be confronted by how I was born again supernaturally and how the ongoing receiving is a supernatural act as well. So I conclude this message. The inference um, from session one this morning reading the Bible must be an act that is supernatural, is confirmed, and the reason is because there's this massive sin issue that is standing in my way from actually seeing what's in the Bible and delighting in it, and Satan is in the way who hates uh, us to see the glory of God and blinds the minds of people who don't believe, and therefore God steps in with his multiple ways of talking about the supernatural help, and he does it for us. And now, and now the, the question we'll tackle tomorrow morning is, okay, all right, I see that I need supernatural help to encounter God in the Word and accomplish through reading what God means for me to accomplish. I see that. It still feels very natural. <laughs> I mean, uh, Logos Bible Software, who are helping us here, good night. Their whole presupposition is that 
it helps for pastors to have natural assistants, like computers and concordances and historical insights, and, and all of it's just assuming that all that knowledge helps, which, which we'll hear tomorrow that it, it absolutely does. And so how do the two relate? And uh, what, what does it mean to read the Bible naturally, to open it up and say, okay, I've got I to gotta use my brain to construe meaning here. When's this other thing you know, supposed to kick in called supernatural sight? And that's where we'll go tomorrow. So before we take a few more questions, I think, let's pray and ask God to do this. Father, as we, as we go out and, and see the glory of the Lord in this magnificent place that you have created, grant, I pray, that these words would land on us, that we would be appropriately serious about our warfare with the devil and appropriately meek and humble and childlike concerning our own helplessness before our sin and our utter dependence on the Holy Spirit and our joy that you will help us. You won't leave us to ourselves. So come and help us, I pray now, with these fresh sights of how you work. Open our minds. Shine in our hearts, I pray, and illumine the eyes of the heart. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.